Well, we've just uh, come out of three amazing passages from the book of Mark. If you remember, uh, at the end of chapter 4, after the teaching of the parables, uh, there's those three crisis moment scenes where the the disciples are on the boat with Jesus. Jesus shows his mighty power, and they're afraid of Jesus because they see his authority. Then he goes over to Gentile territory, and there's this demoniac that nobody can control. He comes rushing at Jesus. Jesus casts the demon out. The legion of demons sends them into pigs. They go into the water. Everybody's terrified of Jesus because of his authority in this moment. And then last week, uh, we took that nice slow walk through the scene of Jairus, uh, Jairus's daughter who had died and the woman uh, with the flow of blood for 12 years. Again, t- two crisis moments that nothing could solve the problem except Jesus' authority uh, is there. And last week's passage, I mean, there we saw the uh, power of Jesus on such clear display and the compassion of Jesus and in the mix that we long for, that we need in God, all-powerful and full of compassion. That's like, that was like a eating a nice fresh piece of watermelon from the, from the beginning to the end. It's just juicy, satisfying, refreshing. Do you experience that with watermelon? Yeah? All right, okay. Th- this passage this week uh, I find to be a little bit more like taking NyQuil. Now, my wife actually likes NyQuil, so this won't work with her. I don't like the taste, and from when a very young age, I just I would plug my nose and eat that stuff uh, when I was sick. It tastes terrible at first, but you know it's going to help. You know it's necessary. It will go to work in you, right? Uh, this passage is very different from the last three. They were juicy, tasty, refreshing. Now we come to one that's a little bitter at first. And yet, if we listen long enough, it is like medicine. It is good for our soul. This passage can greatly help us as we journey on, to, on the pilgrimage to the celestial city because there's much hardship ahead of us if you are going to follow Christ faithfully. Our passage screams this reality, that rejection is commonplace for kingdom proclaimers. Mark wants to say that loud and clear in three scenes that all proclaim the same message, one after another, rejection is commonplace for people who proclaim the kingdom. And so he does this by way of stacking these three scenes on top of one another, right after uh, each other. Uh, Like I said, last week we were able to kind of go slowly through the passage and kind of smell the roses. Uh, This week, due to time uh, and the the length of the passage, we're not going to be able to do that. We'll have to kind of fly through these scenes, but we have to see that theme. Rejection is commonplace for kingdom proclaimers. So it starts off in uh, verse 1. We have a shift in scene. Jesus uh, goes away from there, and he came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, we'll pause there. So here we have this new scene, Jesus showing up on a Sabbath day, going to teach in the synagogue. We've seen this before. This is what Jesus does. His, his main ministry was teaching, remember. And the miracles were to confirm the teaching. But he goes and he teaches. But now what we have different is that he's, he's back home. He's, he's in Nazareth. And you would, you would hope as you're reading that may, maybe this is going to be sort of the hometown hero coming back. right? If this was like a, a star athlete, they'd, they'd be throwing a parade for him. Or if he was some, you know, 
heroic soldier. They'd be putting up a statue and having a big lunch or maybe naming a road after him. This is different because Jesus comes to proclaim something. And we saw at the opening of the book what he's proclaiming. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then we watch that unfold, the teaching unfold. In fact, uh, Luke actually records uh, the first sermon Jesus preaches in Luke is in his hometown. And Jesus picks up the the scroll of Isaiah, reads uh, about the one who is anointed with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is uh, upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to, to set the captives free. Jesus sits down and says, Behold, today that scripture is fulfilled in your midst. The people were ecstatically angry. And they rushed him out to the edge of the hill, tried to throw him off, put him to a quick death. But he just walked right through. Jesus conf- now confronting the people. You, I am here to tell you to repent. And I am the anointed son of God, the king over all the universe, the one that you've been waiting for. And for the people, it's just too much. Look at how they respond. When it says uh, verse Two there that they were astonished, saying you would you would hope that it's a good happy astonishment, but it's not. They say, where where did this man get these things? What is what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? He's the son of Mary. And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and their sisters are with us. And they took offense at him. He's the carpenter. He's that, he's that normal, ordinary guy. You know, in Nazareth, there's only a town of maybe 500 people. It's not very big. And it says there, he is the carpenter. There's maybe one or two carpenters in the whole town. And that's who he is. He's the, the builder guy. Now, we, I think, tend to want to assume, like, okay, if Jesus is a builder, when he built something, it was sort of like Edward Scissor's hands, like, amazing, right? It's probably just an ordinary building. He was an ordinary guy. When they, when they watched him grow up, he was just the carpenter, the son of Joseph. And here they call him the son of Mary, probably in a derogatory way. Either Joseph is dead, or it's a way of saying, hey, that... he." You're illegitimately born. Son of Mary. Because normally you would say the son of Joseph, even if Joseph was dead. They don't like him. You're here to tell us to repent? You're that ordinary carpenter guy. And they will have none of it. They're upset. And at the end of verse 3 there, they took offense at him. They want nothing to do with Jesus, and Jesus then responds with this proverbial saying. This was popular. uh, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives, and even in his own household. And Mark tells us he could do no mighty work there, well, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, which is kind of interesting, right? (laughs) I mean, if I did that, I'd say, man, you should have seen everything I did, right? So I think what Mark is saying there, when he, he could do no mighty work there, we, we actually were told that he did some mighty works. That's what they're questioning up earlier on. Like, how does, he, how does this man do these mighty works? So it's not that he did nothing. It's highlighting the circumstance that's going on. So we, we actually talk like this a little bit. So it might be, give a couple 
quick examples here. So let's, let's say there's a, in a sports, uh, there's something called like sportsmanship, right? Let's say a high school basketball team's winning the game 90 to 35 or something. There's one more quarter left. And, and if, if the team left all their starters, their star players in, they could legitimately break the school record and just destroy this other team. But the coach takes out all the starters and he says, I just couldn't do it. I, I couldn't demoralize the team that way, right? This is, this is something in sports that we do. It doesn't mean you actually couldn't do it, like physically there was something wrong that you couldn't do it, but it, it's the circumstance called for something different. Or say a parent was planning to uh, take their, their kids out for ice cream because they knew they were going to do all their chores on Saturday, right? And instead of the kids doing their chores, what happened? They didn't do hardly any of their chores. Instead, they gave pushback the whole way and were complaining and complaining and complaining and refused to do a couple of them. And the dad or mom gets to the end of the day and says, you know what, I just couldn't. I could not take them for ice cream. It would not be right today. It's not a physical incapability. It's the circumstance called for something different. And I think that's what Mark is getting at there. Their, their unbelief was so deep that just as he showed up to the garrisons and they immediately begged him, get out of here, he says, okay, I'll go. And he gives them over to their unbelief uh, even further. And Jesus marvels at their unbelief, it says in verse 6. And so he went about among many villages teaching. There again we see him teaching. So here we see uh, our claim here, very simple. Rejection is commonplace for kingdom proclaimers. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I don't really like that. This is, this is not a passage that I, that I go, ooh, I cannot wait to think about this. I, I wish Mark was trying to tell us acceptance is commonplace for kingdom proclaimers. You know, you, you proclaim Jesus, that he's the king, that you've sinned against God and you deserve God's judgment, and by trusting in Christ, you'll, you'll find forgiveness. I, I wish that I would be told that you will be accepted everywhere as you tell that message. Or you confront one of your brothers and sisters in the local church who's rebelling against God, and we graciously go to them and say, hey, we see this in you, and we believe God's calling you to turn from your sin. I wish that Mark was saying, you'll be accepted. I, I wish he says that you will be applauded when you proclaim the kingdom of God. I wish that this was, uh, that you, you will be appreciated when you proclaim the kingdom of God. People will, they'll think you're doing great. They'll think you're being, being a good public servant to the community. But that's not what is common for the kingdom proclaimer. What's common is rejection. So part of the message then is come, come, come into the kingdom, come follow Christ, come worship Jesus, and come be rejected, come be scoffed at, come be mistreated, come all who are willing and ready, everyone who has ears to hear, come hear the word of the kingdom. That's hard, that's hard to hear. And sometimes one of the hardest places to hear that or experience that is when you go back home. And some of you have experienced that yourself. And I know when I came to faith and I, I went home, I was very zealous for the Lord. And I had a family member just flat out tell me one, one evening, he says, I don't like you anymore since you become, became a Christian. You're no, you're no fun. This individual th thought it was more fun when I did all the partying and stuff. 
And that, that was just hard to hear. She said, I, I don't like you anymore. And some of you have experienced that. It's, it's pretty common. I have, I've seen in our area where there's a lot of Roman Catholics, Lutherans, uh, when folks come out of that and uh, come to the conviction of believer's baptism, that, that those who confess faith in Christ should be baptized and they decide to be baptized as a believer, uh, that, can, that can have family members upset at you. And I've seen that over the years many times. Now, throughout the history of the world, it's very common for parents to hand over children to be beaten or killed or just thrown out of the community for following Jesus. This is very, very common. And that stings deep when your family rejects you because of following Christ. But he goes on uh, to the next scene. That's scene one. Scene two, rejection is commonplace for kingdom proclaimers, uh, begins in verse seven. Jesus then calls the 12, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. This, uh, this, you know, this is go time here. Finally, uh, chapter 3, if you remember, Jesus first calls the 12, and it, Jesus calls them and says that he's going to send them out to proclaim the kingdom and to cast out demons. He's going to give them authority. But we haven't seen that happen yet through the book. But this is go time. And so you can picture Jesus and the disciples having a meal, and they're eating, and he, he says to them, you know, guys, I'm going to send you out today. I'm going to send you on mission for the cause of the kingdom. And you can, you know, maybe, maybe it says at 1 o'clock, let's meet here. We'll go over the instructions. And so they go off and they're excited. This, this is go time. This is what we've been training for. We're ready for this. Maybe they're doing some, some fist bumps and some jumping around. They're excited. They get all packed up. Here they are. They're ready to go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. We're ready. It's going to be amazing. And Jesus begins, he says, you know, or he says, I'm going to give you authority over unclean spirits. Yes! Bring it on! And now he goes into the, the locker room pep talk here. And here, here, here's how it begins. Hey, guys, the gear that you have, uh, let's, let's make a pile of that over here. You're, you're bringing none of that with you. No bag. No money in your belt. Nothing. You can bring your sandals. You can have, you can have a staff. Yeah, that extra tunic you have, the outer clothing, in case it's cold out at night and you're left out, to, uh, take that off too. You, you don't need any of that. Your sandals and your staff, that's all you get. Everything else, put it here. Okay, well, that, that's not exactly how they were expecting the, uh, the pep talk to be in. But, you know, hey, we're going out on a mission so we can deal with this. And so he goes on, uh, verse 10, and he said to them, Now, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Now, what he seems to be getting at there, when you show up, somebody actually welcomes you into the house. Now, if you're there for a couple of days and you find better, better lodging, you know, an upgrade, don't take it. Stay where you are. Might not be the best, but stay there. Okay, not, not the worst. I mean, it is nice to have an upgrade. I don't know about you, but I, I wouldn't mind an upgrade. But okay, I mean, might not have the best lodging, but at least people are going to like us because we have authority over demons. I mean, we're going to be the talk of the town. Oh, yeah, about that. 
Uh, verse 11. Uh, if, if any place won't receive you because it, it doesn't receive me, well, and they won't listen to you when, you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This is a, the, the Jewish folks, when they would go to Gentile territory, when they would enter back into Israel, they would sh- shake the dust off their feet as a way of saying, we will bring none of the pagan impurities into our land. And Jesus saying, yeah, shake that off as a way of saying, your, your impurities remain with you. Your rejection and your disbelief stays with you. And that dust will cry out in judgment against you on Judgment Day. And I can imagine the disciples go, really? Did he really say that? Did he, did he really mean we would be rejected? Now what are we going to do? If, we, if we're rejected, we don't even have clothes. I mean, all we have is the clothes we got. I don't even have money. What are we going to do? Right, do you really mean that we're going to be rejected? Absolutely. And so they go out and they doesn't really tell us much other than they proclaim the people should repent, cast out demons, and anointed them with oil who were sick and healed them. But here we see the claim uh, once again, rejection is commonplace for faithful kingdom proclaimers. I, I wish Mark's point uh, here in other parts of the book was that, you know, rejection is occasional. Or rejection was rare. It, it happens every once in a while. Or I, I wish it said, maybe even if it said, you could say rejection is normal, but let's add an A and a B before normal. So it's rejection is abnormal. How about that? Can we do that? Or rejection was something in a bygone era. That was back then. Now we're in different times. That's not what it says. The way of the king is the way of the cross. And the way of the king's people is the way of the cross. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. It's the way of death. It's the way of hardship. It's the way of rejection. And it's commonplace. Now, brothers and sisters, that is the exact opposite of everything our American dream tells us to pursue and what we deserve living in our country. Every, our whole system is built to get rid of any pain or heartache. It's everything in our culture does that. We cannot stand hardship. And here the gospel says, I'm calling you to that. You should expect that. That's common if you're going to enter into the kingdom and you're going to be faithful to the call of kingdom people. And that's why Jesus says, count the cost. It will cost you. For some of you, it may cost you a relationship in your family. It may cost you certain friends. And is it going to get worse in our country? I don't know why we shouldn't think it will. Now, that doesn't mean we don't speak against things, but it means that we don't have to be so angsty about it. The Lord told us, right? Rejection is commonplace for us. Why would we think anything different? This is the way of the king. And this is the way of the king's people. It's the way of the cross. Rejection is commonplace. And then he goes on to another scene to show us once again this very same reality. Beginning in verse 14, King Herod 
heard of everything that was going on. Uh, Jesus, he doesn't know about Jesus necessarily uh, too much. He, John the Baptist at this point for Herod, was he was all the rave. Jesus was just getting on the scene. But Herod hears about it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said about Jesus, well, he, Jesus is John the Baptist who has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said about Jesus that he's Elijah. And others said, well, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, oh, no, this is John. John, whom I beheaded. He's been raised. You see, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, there's a great question of why in the world Mark puts this scene right here. I mean, he talked about John the Baptist earlier in the book. Why is he going to now go back in time to something that happened before, uh, and I think it's because he's carrying along this theme that just as Jesus was rejected, the disciples would be rejected, and it's right in line with John the Baptist being rejected because rejection is commonplace. So Herod, uh, this, is, this is a different Herod from uh, the birth of Jesus. This is the son of Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas. And so there was multiple rulers at this point. Um, this is, they're, they're a part of the Jew, a Jewish family, or they're at least partly Jewish, and that's why when John is confronting Herod, it's not that he's confronting a, a leader that's trying to live outside of Jewish custom, it's a leader that's saying he's under Jewish custom, and John's saying, no, you're not. Because by Jewish law, in Leviticus twice, it says you cannot be married to your brother's wife when your brother's still alive. So he's confronting him, saying, no, you're, you're out of line, you're out of step with God's word. As you proclaim that you say that you are, you are under God's, you are a part of God's people, you're disobeying that. So he's being faithful to proclaim the kingdom to Herod and his wife, uh, Herod's new wife, Herodias, is sort of this Jezebel-type character that always wanted Elijah to be killed. She wants John dead. But Herod, he's got this love-hate relationship with, with John, right? He's just like, I don't like what he says, but I don't want to touch the guy because... Clearly something's going on with him. He's, he's, he's a holy man. He's a righteous man. I'm not touching him. So maybe if I just hide him off in a corner, I'll be all right, and, and my wife will just calm down because John will be out of the picture, but I'll still maybe be able to listen to him a little bit. But I, I want to hear him, but I don't want to hear him sort of thing. And now Mark's going to tell the story about what happened, verse 21. But opportunity came finally, it presented herself, sort of like Herodias seemed to, to be scheming up. How can I get this guy killed, though? An opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and leading men of Galilee, so he, this huge uh, party. When Herodias' daughter came in and danced some sort of a, uh, not a, like sort of an erotic dance, most likely, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Now that is not meant to be literal, like that was a a common saying. That meant I'll be very, very generous with you. I mean, what would you ask for? I mean, if a king said that to you, if the president calls you today, hey, 
I'll give you up to half of my whole estate. I mean, what a strange... I mean, talk about that anger and hatred that Herodias has for John when she comes, Herodias' daughter comes to her and says, hey, you know, my stepdad said I could have anything I asked. What do you, what do you think I should ask for? She says, the head of John the Baptist. With an apple in his mouth, bring him to me. Like a pig, his head cut off. And so she says, that's what she does. She goes in and tells Herod, verse 26, or verse uh, 20, 25, she came in immediately with haste to the king, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king, exceedingly sorry, but because he feared man more than he feared God, because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word. And guess what he did? He didn't want to think about it, just said, just get it done. Immediately, the king sent the executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison. And he brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. The girl walked it over to her mother and handed her John the Baptist's head. His disciples heard of it. They came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Well, we don't have time to examine that whole story, but there you see the claim quite clear. If you faithfully proclaim the kingdom as John did, rejection is commonplace. You know, I, I don't like this reality necessarily. In fact, I fear rejection. I don't like rejection. I want acceptance. And it, actually, that's one of the reasons why I withhold my speech about the kingdom at times. Is that not why sometimes you don't proclaim the kingdom to other people? It's because we actually act sometimes more like Herod in this scene than John the Baptist. We're afraid of the reaction of other people, and so we keep our mouths shut. And yet we are called to be people who proclaim the kingdom. And Jesus says, come, I want you to speak. If you're going to follow me, that means speaking and proclaiming the kingdom. If you are going to be faithful to my call, I want you to speak, proclaim, and you will be rejected. You will be mistreated. And some of you, they may even kill. It's a hard message. It's hard to, it's hard to eat. It's hard to taste. But if we listen long enough, it's like medicine. This passage can help us. This can be good for our soul. Not only the message of it, but even the reality of it. Experiencing it can be good for our soul. For example, when you experience rejection on account of the gospel, it moves our heart to trust more fully in God and find our identity in God alone. You know, success sometimes, success in ministry actually can be quite dangerous. For example, let's think of it this way. Let's say you shared the gospel with five people over the course of the next five weeks, one person a week on average, right? Five people, five weeks. And four of them received the gospel with, or, or a confrontation, or you pointing out their sin with great acceptance. We're grateful for you. They're now walking with the Lord. One person, it took a little bit longer, but they too, they didn't, no pushback. It just, it's gone great. 
You know, the major temptation at the point is you, you think you've done quite well. You think you've figured it out. Maybe it's your rhetorical skills. Maybe you've figured it out kind of the, the method or the formula. If you, as long as you talk to people this way or kind of go in this order, then people will respond well to you. And so now all of a sudden, like, you, you want to point out where people are doing it wrong. Why don't you do what I do? You see how we do that? We, we, we twist things so quickly. We grab hold and we, we, we try to build up ourselves. Look at what I've done. Look at what I can do. But if you did the same thing, five people over the course of the next five weeks, one of those people threw a rock through your window because they were upset at you. Two of the people said, don't ever talk to me again. Two of the people just turned and walked away. Maybe one spit in your face first. Suddenly you don't think that you know the answers, right? <laughs> Suddenly you realize, whoa, is this worth it? And you're going to have to deal with the question at that point. Is following Jesus really what you want to do, or do you want that person to like you? And that is good for your soul, because we'll be exposed. We are exposed in those point, moments of what we actually live for. What do we truly find satisfaction in? Where do we find our identity? And that's good for us. If God exposes our, our weakness and our frailties, or where we're wrongfully looking for hope and significance and stability in life, that is God's grace to us. So God can really use rejection as kindness to us to help expose us and set us free from ourselves. Is that not a good thing? That's a gracious thing that God would do for us. And so then... I think Mark would say, so go out, proclaim the gospel, be rejected and be set free. As you come underneath the wing of God and say, God, for you alone will I live, and in you alone will I find my significance, my satisfaction, my identity. I will not look to, the, to other people to give me acceptance. If they accept me, great. If they don't, I still have you, and that's all I need. That's a great thing. It's also great because uh, experiencing rejection stirs up a homesickness. A longing for glory. Right? If, if you're always liked in the world and everybody always accepts you, this place gets pretty comfortable, right? There's, there's not necessarily this longing to get out of it. But if you, if you just look around, if you think about the people that, that you know in your life that walk with the Lord uh, who legitimately have a longing for glory, they, they want to go home, they want the Lord to come back, Typically, those are the people that have experienced some hard pain in this earth. Now, that might be physical pain. It might be emotional pain. It might be something within them, or they're just surrounding their family. And they long for the place for when, when everything is made right again. Right? Where, where there's no more pain. There's no more sorrows. All tears are wiped away. They long for the place where there's no more rejection of people. They long for it. And if you are rejected by a family member or a friend on account of the gospel, that's painful. It's very painful. And it stirs up this, Lord, come again. Bring me home to the place where there's no more rejection. That's a good thing. That sets us free. So in a very real way, I, th I think Mark would say, look, you can't lose. You go out, you proclaim the kingdom wherever you go. You cannot lose. If they accept you, Praise God. That means you can continue to minister the kingdom uh, to them. If they don't, well, then God's going to set you free from the things of the world that you hold on to, and that will be good for you. Yeah? So you can't lose. And so this is also good because remembering this reality prepares us to be, to be stable in the, the instability of rejection. Right? This is just like sports 
Uh, you, you prepare for the game plan. A pilot prepares for uh, if the plane goes down, you, you go through all these protocols, you practice it, so you know when this happens, when this alarm goes off, you can expect it, and you're stable, you're calm, you know what to do. And a passage like this sets us, gives us stability. We should expect it. As we go out, proclaim the kingdom, we know rejection may be coming. It also uh, helps us be comforted when we are rejected. You know, rejection, rejection has this way of whispering in your soul, saying something like, I told you God would not be there for you. If you were really one of God's people, would life really be like this? No, God has left you. That's why. Don't you feel so alone? That's what rejection can whisper into your ear. And a passage like this says, no, 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 brothers and sisters. Rejection is commonplace for all of kingdom proclaimers. It happened with Joseph. It happened with Moses. It happened with Samuel. It happened with David. It happened with Isaiah. It happened with Jeremiah. It happened with uh, Zechariah. And who else did it happen? Oh, yeah, to our Lord himself. It stood before Pontius Pilate, who feared man more than fearing God. He was crucified. And the Lord Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Though he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but looked forward. The joy that was set before him, his own resurrection, the glory of God, and indeed the resurrection of his very own people, that he would have his own people with him. And the reality of knowing that our Lord knows the pain of rejection can be a great comfort when you experience it. Our Lord knows the feelings of being cast away from other people, of being ridiculed, of being scoffed at, of having his words twisted. And he knows that, and he can come close, closer than anybody than we know. And so in a very real way, brothers and sisters, I think Mark would say, okay, go your way. Go proclaim the kingdom. Be rejected for the glory of the king, to his great name. So may God give us the grace to do that as we turn to the Lord's table. We turn to the very place. And remember, our Lord himself was rejected. And in his blood, he sealed the promise that we truly do have a celestial city that we are on our way to. And we look forward to that. If you're a follower of Christ, uh, the table is open to you. Uh, provided you were walking in repentant faith. This is not about uh, perfection, but about direction. Stumbling though we be, uh, we repent and continue to strive forward in faith in Christ. If you're here this morning and you, are, you do not worship Jesus as, Christ, as the Christ, as the Son of God, the one that died for sinners and rose from the dead, uh, then we ask that you not partake in uh, the meal. Uh, or if you're here this morning and proclaim Jesus with your lips, but do not actually live it out, um, then we ask that you not partake as well. But if you're here and striving to live in a repentant faith, then we invite you to join us. Please come grab the elements, return to your seats, and we will partake together.